that's the kickoff. The you know the LA air raid happened. They were shooting like mad at everything, and it seems like they they hit some things and uh, some things crashed, and they recovered them. Yeah, and and that um, that started it off. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Benall of America Audio. It is May 27th, 2006. I am back. Welcome back. Let's get back to business. This week, our guest is Ryan Wood, author of Magic Eyes Only, Earth's Encounters with Extraterrestrial Technology. This is a fantastic book. It chronicles 74 of the key UFO crash cases and... In our interview here, Ryan and I discuss UFO crash case study from a host of different angles. I think you're really going to dig that. And we also discuss a lot of the supplementary material that can be found in Magic Eyes only, ranging from SETI to Thomas Cantwheel and the Majestic Documents in general. So we're covering all that, but before we can do that, let's talk about Ryan Wood. For those of you unfamiliar with Ryan Wood, here's a little bit of background on him. Ryan Wood was born in Maryland in 1955. He first became interested in UFOs when his father, Dr. Robert Wood, was engaged in deciphering the physics of UFOs while managing a research project on anti-gravity for McDonnell Douglas. Ryan is now regarded as a leading authority on the top-secret classified Majestic 12 intelligence documents and the 1941 Cape Girardeau, Missouri UFO crash. A frequent lecturer on the UFO subject, Ryan has taught college courses and made numerous presentations about UFOs to civic organizations and at ufology conferences. He has organized three worldwide UFO crash retrieval symposia. You can find more information about those at ufoconference.com and once presented a UFO lecture to a class on national security affairs at a naval postgraduate school that formed the basis for the final exam. He manages the content of MajesticDocuments.com, and along with his father was the executive producer of a television documentary on the authenticity of the Majestic 12 documents called The Secret. The website for his book, Magic Eyes Only, is MagicEyesOnly.com, and that's spelled with a J, not a G. Let me spell it for you. www.M-A-J-I-C-E-Y-E-S-O-N-L-Y.com. The website, of course, for the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference is www.ufoconference.com, and for the Majestic Documents in general, it's majesticdocuments.com. So it's a trifecta of websites. Hope you got them all down there. Check them out. They're cool. So, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was conducted on May 21st, 2006. Ryan Wood on Banal of America Audio. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. My guest this week is Ryan Wood. He's the author of the really cool book, Magic Eyes Only, Earth's Encounters with Extraterrestrial Technology. Uh, this is a fantastic book. I just finished it over the course of this weekend. Uh, it covers 74 
cases of UFO crashes or UFO landings, and it goes through from the late 1800s all the way up to the 1990s and just has a wealth of information. It's sort of the kind of book you'd present to somebody if you were like, if they were like, where's the proof? Or they think Roswell is the only time a UFO crash. You'd be like, check this book out. It's a must-read for anybody who's a ufologist or UFO researcher, even a layperson into the field. I definitely suggest checking it out for a lot of information on a whole host of cases worth investigating. And uh, the book is Magic Eyes Only. The author is Ryan Wood. He's with us here this week. Ryan Wood, welcome to Banal of America Audio. Hey, well, thanks, Tim. Um, well, let's start out a little bit with your background, how you got into studying ufology and uh, leading up to the publication, obviously, of the book. Well, my exposure to ufology started at a young age when I was 15 years old when uh, Stan Friedman, a noted uh, ufologist and a longtime investigator of the Roswell case, uh, came to dinner was actually working for my father at McDonnell Douglas or uh, Douglas Aircraft Company at the time, and um, he was... Uh, uh, part of a team of people um, working for my father about uh, uh, investigating the nature of UFOs and doing some uh, physics experiments to try to understand how they operate. So that was my first sort of exposure to them. Um, and my father has spent a lot of time reading and investigating. So it's been in the background um, most of my adult life uh, up until about uh, 94 uh, when the Special Operations Manual was uh, leaked onto the, uh, the UFO community. And then we got much more serious together as a team working on documents yeah. and uh, understanding the, the nature of, of authenticating documents and looking at the, the wealth of leaked documents that occurred from 94 to 2000. Uh, Sort of that that time frame, yeah. And there's you know there's so many pages now. There's like 3,500 pages oh, of wow. leaks, leaks classified documents that are top secret code word or top secret. Sometimes they're just secret, but they're all interrelated and discuss the UFO problem. And uh, from the government military perspective, and that's sort of how I got into it. Um, I've sort of focused on unquestionable proof, media acceptance, and uh, a broader engagement of, of the public on a very uh, factual-oriented uh, arena, and, and hence my focus on UFO crash retrievals, which are just like airplane crashes, uh, and, and I don't do lights in the sky, I don't do abductions. It's not that these things aren't important or they aren't true. It's just that there's too much baggage associated with them. And if you have to, at the end of the day, two years, five years, ten years from now, drag out the hardcore proof, you're going to have to have parts yeah. of alien craft. Yeah. And you're going to have to have it fully vetted with the appropriate military people or, or metallurgical people. Yeah. Uh, so that's how I, I got into it, and uh, I've never seen a UFO. I, I've, I mean, I think I've seen a, a light in the sky that looked a little suspicious, but nothing that I could write home about. Uh, and never been abducted. I've purely been an analyst uh, working um, at this problem. So that's that's sort of my perspective. Yeah. 
Now, uh, one of the things I found interesting about you was that you're a second-generation ufologist. Now, was your, like you said, when you were 15, your father uh, was working with Friedman and, and working on the UFO problem. Um, so it's been sort of like, like a father-to-son interest that was passed down to you? Well, you know, he, uh, I mean, my father, Dr. Bob Wood, he, he, it's only that I was interested in it and he, you know, supported it and encouraged it. You know, if I wasn't interested, he wouldn't have pushed it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so to that extent, I am a second generation, you know, ufologist, although my father's still alive and very lucid and oh, yeah, uh, yeah. and very very much helping uh, when he can help in in certain areas. So, oh yeah, I just meant you don't see too many father son um, teams, I guess, in ufology or uh, there are not. Yeah, I mean we're exactly. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so that's pretty cool. I mean, I'd like to see more yeah. of that down the line. Yeah. Um, now moving on to the book, it's Magic Eyes only. Like I said, it's really cool. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, in the introduction. Uh, you discuss how the L.A., uh, the battle over L.A., um, Los Angeles, uh, uh, necessitated the creation of the Interplanetary Phenomena Unit. Why don't you talk a little bit about that, because that's one of the key elements to the story, I think. Yeah, yeah, well, it's the it's sort of the kickoff moment. One of the, the leaked documents that uh, came on the scene uh, mailed from uh, Sacramento from the... Pig Bowl Association, which is a police association in Sacramento, um, contained this single one-page uh, document. Um, George C. Marshall to the to the president, um, top secret, and it basically says that. Um, well, it's dated. Um, I think. March, oh, February 42, um, or late February 42, I can't quite read it here in the in the book, I'd have to look up the exact date, mm -hmm. but it, it was after the LA air raid, and it, it implies or states that there was a, a craft that was recovered in the San Bernardino Mountains, and one that the Navy got that went into the ocean, and that Marshall had instituted a... Uh, review of of all the UFO information dating back to 1897, suspiciously coinciding with the Aurora, Texas, uh, 1897 airship crash, mm -hmm. um, and that that memo sort of sets it up, um, and then typed on the top in a different typewriter font is the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit. Um, and it's as if he wrote the memo, and then the results of the investigation created the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit, and then they sort of used this memo as a uh, as part of their documentation and, yeah. and, and typed it on. And, and there's a bunch of other reasons why I believe the, the memo is authentic. The uh, the Office of Chief of Staff filing number up in the the corner is in the right date and time period. Um, so. And just, uh, I think, two weeks later, they changed to the War Department um, filing system. So for those reasons, uh, it seems to be, you know, completely genuine. Yeah. Um, so that, that's the, sort of the quick thing. But that's the kickoff. The 
you know, the LA air raid happened. They were shooting like mad at everything, and it seems like they they hit some things and uh, some things crashed, and they recovered them. Yeah, and and that um, that started it off. Uh, and um, and so the interplanetary phenomenon that would be like sort of a group that would go and get the crashes or pick up whatever came down. I think that's uh, a fair assessment, but it may be richer and more complex than that. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, and certainly that was part of their mission to keep, get the hardware, track what's going on, um, work with it, and report into the Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence uh, about it. And that's what the Government Freedom of Information Acts of it. Uh, requests have acknowledged about the the IPU and its existence is that it was uh, a group that did work for the Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence and was sort of a special sidebar thing. Yeah. Now, we, don't, we don't know whether or not it's uh, 20 guys or 400 guys uh, and or even a thousand <laughs> at that time. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of what I know about the interplanetary phenomenon at that point. Um, and w one of the, the key leakers of many of the, the uh, Tim Cooper documents, Thomas Cantwheel, was a member of this interplanetary phenomenon unit and joined in the early 40s, um, probably um, because he, he was very effective and in and around intelligence at the time. Yeah, in the area. So, and do you think that that sort of uh, well, that theoretically came about before um, the creation of MJ12? Oh yes, yes, yes. This is forty-two. MJ12 yeah. didn't happen until um, September of forty-seven, uh, and you see that later in some of the other documents that that are on my website, uh, majesticdocuments.com. Is that uh, I think in July of um, 47, sort of just after the, the Roswell crash, uh, uh, no, actually it was, no, it was earlier than that. It was uh, Van, Van Bush uh, wrote a memo to the president saying, you know, we need to exploit these uh, celestial gifts yeah. and try to um, take advantage of these these technologies, and the president wrote back and said, "Yeah, we got to win the war first, and then we can go after this stuff." Um, but it was pretty practical, and so, with maybe the exception of the Manhattan Project, the technology sat in a vault or in some hangar or in some safe spot for a long time, uh, with no one spending much time with it. Yeah, doing doing much work. Yeah, uh, until the Roswell crashes happened, and um, and Twining got involved, and and then they really had a big issue together, and then they proposed it to the president, and when Truman separated or started the CIA and set up the National Security Act and, and separated the Army and the Air Force. They also put this group, Majestic 12 or MJ-12, um, into place yep. and worked worked hard at uh, 
trying to exploit and begin a process of exploiting the ET technology. Yeah, so it was almost like uh, maybe the IPU collected all this stuff, <clears throat> excuse me, and then um, and then after a while it became it got to the point where they were like, all right, we have enough stuff, things are heating up, um, we're gonna they sort of need to get proactive in, in in this instead of just like picking up what falls from the sky. Right, I think that the Roswell thing was a big impetus. The fact that they they had a public relations faux pas. It was, it was quasi-public. I mean, yeah. it, uh, it it lit a firecracker up somebody's tail, and now they had to, you know, gain a little seriousness and, and appropriately uh, deal with it. They couldn't just sweep it under the rug uh, for the time being internally. Yeah. So they they had to keep working at it. And um, for the 74 cases in the book, what are, what do you use generally for the sources? Um, you run through sort of a gamut of them, but just like tell me well, wh where these different 74 cases come from. Well, the cases come from uh, everything from, you know, newspaper articles to single witness testimony to government documents, uh, both official, uh, no debate, totally authentic, and leaked. Um, to that's sort of the light end of it. Uh, the heavy end would be, um, you know, dozens of witnesses, lots of interlocking data, lots of documents and so forth. And I created a whole authenticity scale for each crash. Yeah, actually, yeah, that was one of my favorite parts of the book is the weighting system you use in the book to uh, to sort of judge each case against the certain merits. Can you describe a little bit about the weighting system that you use in the book and, and how you sure. went about designing that and, and how it works? Yeah, I mean, when you step back and you look at all this, this data, uh, you say, well, you know, some of it's better than others, and, and, and how do you outrank it? How do you um, provide the reader with some guidance as to which one's more credible than others? And so I, I created this framework of... Uh, of, of, of weighting system or authenticity that allows any case to be judged uh, in a credible, reasonable, legal-like way. Yes. Um, and all crashes that, you know, pass initial muster of, of having some credible kernel of, of information uh, start with a neutral weighting. You know, they're they're in the 50-50, sort of 50% chance it's fake and bogus, 50% chance it's real and um, and authentic yeah. and, and compelling. And, uh, and within that aspect, uh, I created these multiplying factors. Um, so each one of these elements is going to get a score, and then it gets multiplied by this factor. Um, witnesses, first-hand professions, uh, state of mind, and number, and different relationships, uh, those are attributes within a witness, and, and it got a weighting multiplier of three. Um, and you contrast that with something like forensics, physical uh, trace testing, paper and ink testing, documents, forensic linguistics, things like that, mm -hmm. where you actually have physical stuff to test, uh, maybe a piece of uh, a wreckage and things like that, where we get a multiplying factor of five. Um, and then the other types that vary in, in factors from sources, where the thing came from, uh, zingers, which I call obscure facts or actions, uh, rare, verifiable subtleties, um, 
accurate oddness. <laughs> these are uh, these are really obscure things where you you know you you type in McNabb law into the uh, to Google and you discover that oh this is a precursor to Miranda and it was appropriate you know only in the 40s and and early 50s and sure enough there's a reference to that in in the document where you know anybody faking or forging something like that would most likely have used the wrong term yeah. Uh, so, and then there's content and chronology. Is it out of time and place? Um, is, is everything consistent, accurate, and believable? And then no hint of anachronisms, things that are uh, out of place in time or, or oddities that, uh, that people just point to and say, oh, well, it's obviously a fake because blank. Yeah. Because Area 51 wasn't... Uh, um, Established until 55, which is completely bull. It was established in 51. Um, and, and so stuff that's in the common domain that people have at their mental fingertip when you study closely, you often just determine that anachronisms or potential anachronisms suddenly become zingers. Yeah. Um, and, and so those weighting multipliers or those categories and then the score in each category um, determines the the level of authenticity that, that goes with each um, each case and uh, so it just at the high end of authenticity I'll read you that and I'll read you the low end of authenticity okay uh, why don't I start with the low end first a low level of authenticity um, a low level means that significant, irresolvable anachronisms have been identified that cast doubt on the entire case or document. Virtually all investigative avenues have been pursued and show little or no sign of internal consistency. Witness stories don't match and differ from the direct evidence. Credible motive for faking a document or hoaxing an event may be identified along with likely perpetrators. So that's a pretty tall nugget. You, yeah. you you have to be able to pick a case, show that the witness stories are are inconsistent, that you've got somebody ID to have faked it, um, and you may have spent a vast amount of time and money to verify all that. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can clearly throw it in the trash can and say, hey, I, I checked it out, and yeah. uh, there's no way this is real. Um, but very nobody has has done that. Uh, there's lots of cases in the book that are in the neutral category that are just begging for more investigation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then on the other end of the scale, at the high level of authenticity, you know, there's a few cases that make this nugget: uh, Roswell, Kecksburg, um, Aurora, Texas, um, uh, Braxton County, mm -hmm. things like that. That those are the ones that are, have made this nugget already. Uh, high level of authenticity, 80 to 100 percent. So even within that, you got some range. This means that virtually all investigative channels and ideas have been pursued, and with each test, 
the case or document has shown to be authentic or nearly problem-free. At this level, multiple witnesses are present that have seen the crash or aftermath or have read a document about it in an official capacity, have signed or will sign an affidavit to that effect. Physical evidence is available, for example, rocks to test, scarred trees, photographs, or direct ET materials. Forensic tests of paper, ink, obscure content, handwriting, period, typography, fonts, correct formatting, forensic linguistics, along with no sign of anachronisms, all indicate the highest level of authenticity. At least several researchers are in substantial agreement about the core evidence of the case, often for many years. So that's equally challenging. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you, you, you got to have. You know, a big case like Roswell that's been investigated by lots of different people that basically agree that something came down. There's lots of witnesses. There's um, lots of evidence, and that's uh, uh, that's the big a big nugget too. And it may take an awful lot of work to get to that level as well. Yeah. So that's sort of the primer on how I rated each crash. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It's one of the cool parts of the book, because uh, you can sort of get that little little diet, little chart thing under each chart graph. It's pretty neat. Yeah. Um, now, uh, Len Stringfield, he uh, he was sort of the crash, the UFO crash guy back in the day. Um, not uh, well. People who are in ufology, they know about him. People who are sort of on the cusp don't know too much about him. Can you give a little background on Len Stringfield? I'm sure you know a lot about him because yeah. you're you're the crash UFO guy of the contemporary <laughs> age. Yeah, Len is. Um, uh, he recognized long ago that uh, it's all about the physical evidence, and he had some um, some exposure. He was, I think, in the Air Force. He, his nickname was uh, um, Webster because he, he like memorized the dictionary and had a photographic memory. Uh, he was an intelligence, had a lot of access to the Air Force, and this was back in a time when the Air Force was, you know, had their fingers, the eyes, and ears out trying to get intelligence and information, and he. Um, he was able to develop these sources and, and get information from them, too. Um, and he published a variety of, of little uh, booklets, sort of raw data about crash retrievals. He never really revealed his sources very much, yeah. although there are a lot of source materials in his his status reports one through seven, mm -hmm. which are, aren't in print anymore. Um, but some of the cases uh, aren't very compelling, and some are very uh, supportive of other cases. And Lynn was, uh, uh, you know, gave several talks in the MUFON, uh, Mutual UFO Network uh, proceedings and he, he was very involved in the, the whole field of crash retrievals, and uh, it's an important, important man to um, uh, to help the the whole process along. And he he passed away a while ago, and his wife was very complimentary of my book when I sent a sent it to him. Oh, that's great. Um, it, 
Stringfield's first book was the Inside Saucer Post 3-0 Blue, published in 57. He served from 57 to 70 as a public relations advisor for Washington, D.C.-based NICAP, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, which um, Roscoe Hillencoder, after retiring from the director of CIA, was you know, on their board of directors. Yeah. Um, so he, he was a... Pioneer? A pioneer. Yeah. Um, as we were talking about your waiting system... And you noted some of the the, uh, the best of the best, if you will, Roswell, Kecksburg, Shag Harbor. Uh, we had Peter Robbins on the show. He was talking about Rendlesham, and actually Richard Dolan was talking about the Las Vegas uh, case that's pretty infamous. Um, is there another case you think that's sort of on the cusp or deserves note or hasn't really been fully uh, explored yet that you think could move up to the next level of, of goodness, if you will, for crashes? Well, I'm... I'm excited about the. I mean, it just takes money to and time to move these things from neutral to higher levels. Yeah. Um, the uh, the the Desert Range Experimental Station in in Millard County, Utah, in 1953, that Linda Moulton Howe was investigating, uh, offers big promise of being. Uh, something spectacular, and and the next phase is to go over there with ground penetration radar and, and metal detectors and try to find uh, the buried craft. Yeah. And that, you know, as soon as you find some physical evidence, then immediately pops up a notch mm-hmm. and provided it, you know, checks out. And though there are many in here that could move to a higher level um, Within a couple of years, I, you know, there's 74 in the yeah, book, yeah. but I'm, I have 11 more that aren't in the book that will be going into the next edition when I when I do it probably in another year or so, um, and at that time we'll review all the other um, crashes and see if anything has moved up. Yeah, um, but you think that one that Lennon Molden Howe is looking at could could be uh, one of the next big ones. Yeah, it could definitely move up. Yeah, it could move up strongly. Um, some things are, are thoroughly vetted and, and you're done. You can't like, do much more. Mm-hmm. But other things are just begging for more investigation. Um, yeah. So it, it, it depends. You, ultimately, you could also add another metric um, of, of how complete the investigation is. Yeah. You know, is it 50% complete or 80% complete? Uh, but you keep getting new tools and techniques to advance the uh, investigation. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it is sort of really based on perseverance and luck to really get it to the next level, you think? Well, I don't think luck is that much. It's just uh, execution. I mean, it. You know, if you pretended that you're a crack FBI team, you would know right what to do and where to go and um, how to spend money and, and run around and <laughs> make progress. Yeah. Uh, and you you could. And that's the thing is that the government has not covered its tracks well. Um, there's 
physical evidence that virtually all the crash sites that where you have an actual crash rather than a just an intact craft that was removed, like in, in the Kingman, Arizona case, where you had uh, a complete craft come in and with several quality witnesses and military, but there was no breaking apart of the craft, mm -hmm. and they they picked it up whole and carted it away. So in that case, you can't really apply certain techniques where you you can in other cases where you you have wreckage and yeah. you can do archaeological things and photography things. When you uh, when you come across somebody who's sort of a skeptic or whatever, you, all, you I always sort of hear the the argument. Uh, give me your best case. So what's what would you say is the very best case of all seventy four that are in the book? Well, you know that's it's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, it's best to whom, what, when, how. Uh, the thing that impresses me and the reason why that I did the book was the preponderance of the evidence, the, the fact that there's 74 and I get 11 more that aren't in there. Yeah. By the time I'm done in another year or two with, you know, this sort of synthesis and review, there's going to be well over 100 crashes. Yeah. And there may be even more than that if I start doing a better job of looking at India or China mm -hmm. or South America. I mean, I've been very parochial in just focusing on obvious stuff in U.S.-speaking countries where I know the investigators and things like that. Yeah. Uh, but when you start looking at it from a worldwide point of view, you may discover that there's you know, the ET craft seem to have no preference for the United States. They go wherever they darn well want to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, there's a little bit of skewing. So there may be, um, you know, two, three hundred. Oh, wow. Um, and that's, and taking it to the next level, in my mind, is to get uh, a dozen, two dozen, crash events with parts. We got we got five crashes with parts. And people consider parts proof that really lights them up. Yeah. And uh, that's powerful and uh, convinces people. Mm -hmm. You know, I think some people wouldn't be convinced if you had an alien cadaver on the, uh, the table. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah. They would say, well, you know, give me uh, five... Uh, peer-reviewed journal studies on the anomalies in their biology to prove that it's not some some freaked-out, uh, you know, human defect. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the green blood won't do it for them. Uh, yeah, exactly. So it really is an individual thing, but mm -hmm. most reasonable people, when they start this book, if they have an open mind, at the end of the book will walk away with the fact, oh, yeah. There's been a lot of UFO crashes. They pay a lot of attention to this, and they grab it and are taking it away for uh, unknown purposes. And uh, it's a highly sensitive and classified thing. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things I noticed, too, about the uh, going through the crashes, and I wish I'd, I'd, I did take some, uh, some interesting sort of uh, numerical notes here that I'm going to get to in a moment, but one of the things that I wish I had taken notes on in retrospect was uh, 
there appears to be a large number of bodies recovered um, in these crashes. Not each particular crash, but if you added up all 74, there must have been, there had to be at least two dozen bodies, at least. Um, oh, yeah. What do you, that's a lot of bodies. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know, can you speak to that at all? It sounds like that, that it's not just crashes that are getting picked up, that it's the biology as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're getting the full gamut of the package that, flew, that crashed. Uh, the value of the crash retrieval is sort of unknown. You don't don't really have a, a clear idea. I mean, in some cases, there's fiber optics inside the craft. You know, they all have power plants. They may have bodies. They may simply be logic reasoning machines that are unpiloted. Um, there's a wealth of opportunity to pursue. The question is, what's your available talent pool? How many resources can you put on the the particular thing, what's the best leverage for military and defense, if that's the goal. Um, I, you know, it's obvious that a massive amount of effort would be focused on the power plant yeah. and, and understanding that. And, and also any sort of materials and navigation. Um, in fact, I think that the, the biology part in the early days, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, may have simply just been dumped in formaldehyde and put put on the side, uh, or not much done with it, compared to the the metallurgy, the power plants, yep, yep. the things that are clearly exploitable. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, some of the the majestic documents uh, that were leaked. Uh, a hint of the use of this biological tissue, and I'm just trying to find the, the quote here that's um, fairly unnerving and, and powerful and controversial, actually. Oh, nice. Um, I like that. <laughs> uh, let's see. It's under... Biological Warfare Programs. This is a 1952 time frame document mm -hmm. draft. Um, uh, it has these 20 different topics, but under topic F, Biological Warfare Programs, VW programs in the U.S. and U.K. are in field test stages. Discovery of a new virus and bacteria agents so lethal that serums derived by genetic research can launch medical science into unheard of fields of biology. They're talking about the implications of, of uh, having ET bodies and looking at the uh, samples extracted from the bodies found in New Mexico have yielded new strains of a retro hyphen virus not totally understood, but give the promise of the ultimate BW weapon. Oh, man. The danger lies in the spread of airborne and bloodborne outbreaks of diseases in large populations with no medical cures available. So wow. they, they clearly recognize that uh, let's weaponize these, these guys, and they've gotten some interesting viruses weird wow. yeah yeah right. that's scary you are you're right it's unnerving <laughs> yeah yeah and then the controversy over that uh, that particular paragraph was the 
the note retro hyphen virus. Skeptics say that uh, this is an anachronism. Uh, retrovirus wasn't done until uh, 72, um, and this is 52. Uh, they're not talking about an RNA virus. Um, they're really talking with the traditional Latin term, the backward virus. And this was, you know, 52 was right at the cusp of the shift from bacteriology to virology and that viruses of the, um, of that time were often labeled as bacteria or problems and, and vice versa. Yeah. So science was just shifting over to under better understand the nature of viruses, um, and even that term retrovirus is uh, in some obscure literature that uh, is supportive of its nature uh, yeah. in context now or back then. Mm -hmm. One of the crashes I wanted to ask you about in specifics, I didn't really want to get into too many uh, actual specific crashes, but this one piqued my interest, and that was the Nogal Canyon crash of 1947, and because the the main source of that seemed to be uh, Ray Santilli, who's of uh, alien autopsy fame. Um, right. And in light of all this news lately that he's pretty much admitted that he faked the movie, or I'm still trying to wrap my head around what exactly is going on with this news that's come out from him, um, how do you apply that to the case? If uh, if you obviously you've heard some of it, I, I assume so. Right. Well, I don't. Um, I mean, you have to sort of stop and um, talk about uh, recent or, or the the cameraman. Um, I'm I'm not the the alien autopsy film wizard. Yeah. Um, and that's Philip Mantle. And Philip Mantle has done an extensive amount of research and uh, was going to speak at our last crash retrieval conference. The I haven't heard that, uh, unless this is extremely recent, that uh, the cameraman faked it. Actually, I, I don't. I don't believe it. Um, and what's interesting that's happened since. You know the ten, eleven years now since the, the the alien autopsy film was made public, is that several more witnesses? I think four or five. Philip Mantle has interviewed that described seeing the exact same film before it became public in an official uh, capacity. Yeah, and so. Um, so there may be more to it than we think. Uh, clearly, and if if I was to you know give you an opinion, I would say it's probably you know sixty five percent chance that it's real and authentic, and thirty five percent chance that it's not. Um, but the Nogal Canyon is interesting in that um, you know it doesn't rest alone on the story of Ray Santility. Um, Wendy Connors and Ed Germain have, have been there. They've been to the crash site. They've seen discolored rocks. They've found the, um, the uh, indentation area. Uh, they're clearly on the trail. Mm -hmm. And there's other physical evidence that indicate that it could, in fact, be, you know, 
a real event. Yeah. So that's the um, that's the good news, and and it has a actually that's one of the ones that could use more investigation. There's probably parts there. It's just a question of um, looking at it and then really scouring the area. You know, ten guys yeah. a week and a half sifting through every piece of inch of soil um, and, and doing a very rigorous job to try to pull out material. Yeah. Of the 74 cases, here's the numbers that I was, uh, I worked over the numbers here when I was looking at the table of contents of the specific cases. Um, 60 of the 74 cases occurred between uh, 1940 and 1980. What do you think are the elements that caused such a drop-off in cases um, from the last 26 years approximately? Uh, I think it's it's basically um, data data sampling data um, uh, bias. In other words, I I haven't there has been either fewer leaks or less research to to pull upon. Um, uh, the, the counterintelligence guys are doing a better job of plugging the hole and maintaining security. Yeah. Uh, so I think that the the crash density I think has been uniform all along, um, but my ability to grab cases and put them in the book uh, is limited to some extent by you know, what's out there, what's been investigated, what's been vetted to yeah. a certain level. Yeah, and with the and with the recentness of and, and to, like twenty six years sounds like a long time, but when you really think about it, you know. Stuff from like 1990 on to today, that takes a while just to just to research itself. So right, and there's um, I think a couple in the 11 that I have that are even more modern. There's one in 2000. Oh wow. Um, so, but it, it just takes a lot of time and effort to uh, get them to the point where you could take them public. Yeah. So you think there's, there's probably there's probably more within that realm of time. It's just that they haven't really surfaced up to the top yet. Yeah, they ha they haven't come out of the woodwork. Uh, they may be in uh, uh, different countries too. Yeah. It's clear that the ETs uh, pay attention to things that are nuclear, things that are flying very fast. Um, but at the same time, there's some randomness to, you know scores or hundreds of different civilizations exploring the cosmos and uh, um, going by lickety-split and discovering this, oh, here's a planet. Let's just send one of our disposable drones over there and uh, pick up some data. Yeah. Uh, and they, they crash into the Earth and, you know, there's, there's nobody on board or maybe there's a disposable biological robot. And that's that. And uh, they sometimes they seem to pay attention the, the ETs to where they land, and other times they don't. Yeah. And then this is sort of another uh, numerical type question. Uh, obviously, I'm, this is sort of a um, I don't know. You may not even be able to answer it. I don't know. It's sort of a speculative question. But from '62 onward, um, only 11 of the remaining 38 cases are in are in the U.S. And since '72, it's only six of the last 25. So, what do you think? Um, is the reasoning behind the uh, the growth of international cases as it as the book goes on? I don't think again there's any um, 
I don't know. I mean, I just collected all the data, <laughs> threw away the stuff that was, uh, you know, real junk, and um, it was only three or four cases like that, and, and just put it down. And I can't really read anything into it other than I think it's, it's again, just data bias and that as the author, I don't have anybody that I can call up in yeah. uh, Turkey or China or, or Brazil. I mean, there's some, I mean, A.J. Gravard and a few people, but what you really want is somebody that's been around the block for 10, 20 years that's familiar with some of these cases and uh, has looked at them and feels comfortable that they're not hooey. Yeah. So, uh, I don't read much into it other than uh, I think the density is uniform and continues to continue to crash. And I know that NORAD continues to track them. And, and I know that, uh, you know, the the Project Moondust people um, that pick up space junk uh, continue to probably find stuff that's not space junk, but out of this world, yeah. literally. Yeah, as a testament to the book, uh, like I said when I was going through the thing, uh, there's, it's not just the U.S. And, and the U.K. and the sort of countries you'd expect. There's actually, uh, there was 19 countries, pretty much, uh, that are featured in the book that there is a crash of some sort at. Yeah, so I thought well, that that's was good. Amazing. I'm glad you, you did that. I didn't know there was 19 countries. That's, that's fun. Yeah. I mean... Uh, and we got France and uh, oh, Canada. Got, oh, Congo. it's unbelievable! Yeah, I got the list here. So, uh, Wales had a couple, Australia with three, uh, Bolivia with two, Peru had one. Uh, like you said, the Congo, Iceland, Ukraine, uh, some place called Somaliland that I've never yeah, even heard of. So, so it's in Africa. Yeah, I mean, in yeah. Scotland, it's pretty amazing uh, that there's. It's like you said. It's 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 if you. If if we if there was more of a uh, unified sort of UFO field throughout the world, uh, like you said, I think the crashes would be much higher. Right, and I think there are um, in some countries. I think there is quite a bit. I mean, in Japan, like I don't have any in Japan, and I know there's got to be some in Japan. Yeah, and Japan has a very strong, um, you know, UFO focus. And I, I just don't have any contacts in in Japan, but I, I want to get there. Yeah. Uh, and and China's the same way. It's a huge land, and although it's you know it's been a pretty closed society for a long time, but uh, uh, maybe we could get some info out of there. Yeah. And like you said, India too probably has a lot. Yeah, the India, right? India. I mean, the whole. You know, India would be good because it's English-speaking, and there's a lot of people, a lot of witnesses. Uh, I'm sure there's several there. Yeah. I just I haven't plugged into that field. Yeah. Is there much of a of a, UFO, uh, of a ufology field in India? I mean, you don't hear from too many people coming out of there other than the India Daily stuff. Well, that's a good question, and I, I don't really know. I mean, what I would do is typically take the MUFON journal and or the... MUFON proceedings and, uh, um, and look here for the international foreign representatives. So there seems to be good foreign representation in the following cities, at least for the largest 
uh, UFO organization. Ukraine, Turkey, Thailand, Taiwan, Switzerland, Sweden, Spain, Russia, Romania, Prague, um, Netherlands, Mexico, Malta, Israel, Hong Kong. Hong Kong would be interesting because they might get you into China. Guatemala, Cyprus, China. There's somebody in China. Belgium, Australia, and Austria. So you get a little bit of Europe. Um, those are the people that I could instantly write an email to. Yeah. And uh, actually, that's a good idea. I should do that and uh, and ask them to uh, see if we can get some more. You know, but send them a list and yeah. if there's any other crashes that they're aware of. Yeah, but no India, see? That's, that's yeah, strange. Yeah, no India, right. It's pretty strange. Okay, another portion of the book that I wanted to ask you about was uh, you have a pretty sweet chapter in the end about SETI. Um, oh, yeah. Can you discuss this portion of the book? And then also, as an author, uh, sort of like the, the editorial choice, why did you include it in the book? Um, well, I'll, let me take the second question first. Okay. Um, the the number one thing that most newspaper or magazine or TV people point to and say, you know, you guys are all whacked, is you know SETI. They say, well, we're we're searching for extraterrestrial life. That's what SETI's mission is. These are the top scientists in the world that have. Uh, decided to focus on this, uh, if there was anything to your crashes, and, and let alone hardware proof or any of this stuff, they would know about it and they would have um, been focused on it. Uh, and they're not, so it's all junk. And I wanted to just really lay into the, 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 the hypothesis and the core elements of SETI and even some of the people of SETI and, and show why the entire supposition for uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence is, is ill-designed, and it's, it's more of an exercise in, uh, um, you know, just goof-off, uh, yeah. playing with uh, fancy sensors and listening to radio waves um, from the stars. Uh, rather than any strategic, well-thought experiment uh, that is consistent with what we know about just even the evolution of our own race. We, yeah. we know that, uh, you know, radio waves are uh, started, you know, what, 150 years ago or something like that. Mm -hmm. And most people will easily agree that they're only going to last another 150 years. Yeah. Uh, and so you got this 300-year window uh, across uh, a life of a civilization that's uh, a million, 10 million, 100 million years old. Um, that's advanced civilization might live that long. Yeah. And so just from the get-go, it's not a very good indicator of possible uh, intelligent life. And because the media touts this out, I wanted to just try to really lay into the strategic framework of, of SETI and, and point out the issues and problems with SETI and the fact that it's dumb. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> as Stan Friesman you know, says, it's a silly effort to investigate. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I wanted to put it in there and, and talk about it and, and bring up some of the, the people, uh, Frank Drake's uh, 
linkages to uh, naval top secret classified programs and and the fact that they've they've had cattle mutilate uh, excuse me animal mutilations right there at uh, uh, at some of their facilities uh, their heavy linkages to the CIA and, and the Robertson panel and um, and MJ12 and, and Vannevar Bush and so forth and so I wanted to lay down the gauntlet and put it in their face yeah, uh, and show that, hey, there, nobody has really done that, that this is, uh, it's just stupid. <laughs> and so I, I haven't really, I'm, I'm about ready with a little more work um, on parts and physical evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to get to the point in six months or a year to really take it to the SETI guys. Nice. To, you know, call them out, to send them the book, to start writing press releases, to start making a stir and not only heavily attack, but at the same time back it up with, well, here's some parts from a crashed UFO, which are clearly extraterrestrial, according to all these metallurgical scientists, and and your entire proposition is is a waste of money. Yeah. Give me the money. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and let's try to do some real research. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's the sort of plan with SETI. I want to uh, not only deconstruct the, the propositions of SETI, but the funders of SETI, too. I yeah. want to embarrass them for their stupidity uh, and, you know, God, I don't know. It's been Microsoft and Intel and several other big corporations that have plowed in hundreds of millions of dollars to this. And for what? Exactly. Just to keep some PhDs uh, stroking their chin yeah, uh, in a stupid way and, and ignoring the data that's in their face. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's that's my soapbox. <laughs> well, it's a re- it's a great chapter in the book, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm no I'm no SETI fan myself, so I enjoyed yeah. it a lot. And uh, like you like you intimated in the book that uh, ufology could use the money that's being foolishly wasted in SETI, like this uh, Paul Allen telescope array thing that they're building. You know, if just uh, just a small percentage of the money they're throwing into that thing could be put into ufology, we could crack this thing overnight. Yeah, we'd make a lot of progress. Um, and you sort of, uh, there was a situation in the book where they, you sort of suggest maybe that they, uh, that the government, uh, either infiltrated SETI or took over control, military control of SETI or something like that to try and make sure that in the event that they got something that the government made sure that they knew what to do with it next. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a fair statement. I think that, uh, Drake was was part of MJ-12 or was briefed briefed into it, and that they are the cover story. I mean, the MJ-12 group had Donald Menzel uh, writing anti-UFO books uh, from his high post in astronomy at Harvard and was a lead disinformation guy. And SETI is the lead disinformation tool about ET presence. Yeah. And, and that's the thing, is that it's not terribly cloak and dagger. Uh, it's just, 
it's it's the thing that's out there in front that you have to wade through and rebut yeah. um, if you're in a major media situation. Um, so that's what uh, it it will get whacked. The question is when. Yeah, the sooner the better. Right. Um, at the end of the book, also, this is sort of another little subchapter on. Um, Tim Cooper, the documents he got, and uh, I believe it's Thomas Cantwheel. Is that the guy's yeah, name? Yeah. Uh -huh. And there's uh -huh. even a very compelling, uh, 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 what's the word? A copy, I guess, would be the word uh, of, the, of a letter that Cantwell wrote to, uh, to Tim Cooper that was sort of chilling in a way. Yeah, uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about Tim Cooper, how he got these documents, and who this Cantwell character was? Sure. Um, well... Tim Cooper is a, a UFO researcher um, that filed a lot of Freedom of Information Act requests in the um, uh, in the early 90s or maybe even the late 80s uh, about UFOs and in various aspects of military uh, intelligence and. Uh, he is the son of, of Harry B. Cooper, who was a printer uh, at, uh, I think, Coleman Air Force Base, and printed a bunch of top-secret classified documents and did photographs and so forth, all about UFOs. He was, he was in the United States UFO, uh, Air Force UFO program. Yeah. And... and I think it's because his his father was in the program, and that his friends, his father's friends, may have met young Tim, you know, when he was a toddler, yeah. um, to a small boy, and then later in life to discover that he has an interest in this field, um, he became a conduit. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's most people ask, well, why Tim Cooper? You know, this is a random guy. Yeah. Uh, actually, Tim is very interested in uh, the Kennedy assassination and, and more fascinated with religious implications and, and, uh, and the Kennedy assassination than he was with uh, UFO material. But he uh, he successfully started filing these freedom of information requests, and I think that. Um, some of the declassifiers, people that review the materials and, and decide to uh, declassify it, typically are retired people of the year, their era um, that were there, that you know are doing this because they have a top secret clearance and they're seventy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, and I think that one of those people knew Tim Cooper and knew his father and decided to leak. Yeah. Uh, out of remorse um, or, well, uh, that, that's right, or, or out of, you know, disgust of, of where it's gone. And I think that's what's, what happened in the case of Thomas Cantwell, uh, which is a pseudonym. And I think Cantwell knew his, Tim Cooper's father and then released a lot of documents from his own files directly into mail system to Tim Cooper's mailbox in Big Bear Lake and um, via other 
other methods. There was a couple things that were mailed from uh, the CIA and from Fort Meade um, and had their postage return mark stamps on that. So uh, that's that's sort of why Tim, um, and Tim was a recipient of a lot of different documents, uh, some of them original documents, you know, no photocopies, but original onion skin on uh, watermarked and, you know, with typewriter marks and real inks and lots of forensic testing capable. So yeah. uh, that's the, uh, that's an exciting part. But the, uh, the final, final letter, uh, which is a tribute to, to Cantwheel, really, who facilitated and enabled this whole book to, to happen. Uh, you know, it goes, uh, Dear Mr. Cooper, by the time you read this le letter reaches you, I will have left this world. I have cancer and don't have much time. There are many things to tell you about the 1947 New Mexico discoveries um, that I've that I was personally involved in, but the grave beckons me most earnestly, and will have to wait uh, any longer. And what's interesting here is this, is the use of the word New Mexico discoveries. Yeah. It sounds like uh, they didn't say crashes. He called them discoveries. Yeah. I suppose that they were discoveries. I mean, they crashed, and then somebody found them and discovered them. Uh, and then um, where was the, the note? Yeah, at the end, he goes, in closing, I can only add that the UFO secret has been a costly one, not only in the lost credibility by the government. This is actually one of the you know, biggest things yeah. of why they're not telling the truth now is, would you really trust your government more if they say, well, for the past 60, some odd, 70 years, we've been hiding the UFO secret and we've done a really well good job of it. we got bodies and all sorts of stuff. Um, boy, most people would say, what else are you hiding? Yeah, yeah. You know, how are we going to fix this? Uh, exactly. Um, lost credibility by the government, but in human lives as well. Uh, during my service for CIA and CIC, the Counterintelligence Corps, I committed many distasteful and sometimes regrettable acts of skullduggery in interests of national security for my superiors, and I now will be rewarded for my sins. Live a long and rewarding life, Tim, and add a word of caution along with it. In in caps, trust no one completely. Um, so, you know, regrettable acts is in, uh, it's basically an admission of murder. Um, there's other documents that talk about um, regrettable acts, and clearly in the case of Forrestal, and, and he was murdered. So, uh, you know, here's a, you know, a counterintelligence and CIA operative that um, did all sorts of uh, skullduggery and murders uh, to keep the secret a secret. Yeah. Um, not only probably of U.S. citizens, but of foreign assets and, um, you know, who knows to what ends 
they would go to to capture new technology and gain control over, you know, the Soviets or the Bolivians or whoever's got it. Yeah. Um, and he, in that letter, he also alludes, he, he apologizes for giving him some false information or something like that. Uh, is that uh, like a problem that came along with the Cooper documents that some of them were mixed, some disinformation was mixed in? And did he ever explain why he did that? Um, well, yeah, he, I think he mentions it in there um, that he said that uh, uh, he had to do it to ensure plausible deniability. Um, but he also reassures Tim that the content is uh, accurate, but he changed dates and places and, and made some minor, uh, you know, corrections to ensure that uh, he, uh, he would have plausible deniability in the public. Yeah. Um, and, and possibly to protect himself, but I don't. I don't believe believe so. So, but um, when you look at the documents, you start analyzing each sentence, yeah. each phrase for its uh, its truth, for mm-hmm. veracity. Uh, I really haven't found anything that's that's manipulated and compellingly fraudulent. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few things that have you know signatures that are identical, and there's a few um, documents, you know, a handful out of the 3,500 pages that are what Stan Friedman considers boilerplate uh, or, or, or emulations uh, where one's copied from another. But even when you study the emulations, they're not identical. You know, the, the word counts don't match. Uh, there's different phrasing. They're similar. And then you could easily imagine a secretary who's used to writing all sorts of orders, um, you know, just having her superior general walk in and say, yeah, work up uh, some directives to send, uh, you know, General Twining to to New Mexico um, for this crash retrieval thing, you know, the usual sort of thing, and and the secretary would just type it yeah, uh, and change a little, she's typed hundreds of them before. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and to think that the, the general would sit down in longhand uh, and, and write out precisely what he wants to say um, uh, is ludicrous. I mean, it's... Sort of, he'd probably give the secretary that initial instruction. She'd type it up, hand him a draft. He'd look at it, and say, "Oh yeah, add this, add this." Type it again. It's gone. And um, yeah. So without really digging deeper and vetting these uh, these subtleties, you know, each document has to be taken on its own merits. Um, and some are more fully investigated and validated, like the Special Operations Manual, mm-hmm. um, which is central to this book, Extraterrestrial Entities, Technology, Recovery, and Disposal, um, that we've vetted it every which way. And there's virtually nothing more we can do. Um, there's a few things left, but, you know, we're in the 99% confidence level that it's true and authentic. Yeah. Uh, and this is, you know, a how-to manual on how to 
cordon off the area, grab the bodies, uh, create a cover story, where to ship the ship the stuff. Um, it's it's pretty damn clear that there's oh, they crash, and uh, here's what to do. Yeah, yeah, and that's the infamous Psalm 101 uh, yeah. document yeah. that's pretty well known in ufology, and you say it's central to the book. Well, um, like, like, well, pretty much kind of explain why it's central to the book, because it's a manual on how to uh, right. retrieve crashes, and that's that's pretty much why you include it in the book, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there are complete replicas in there as well of, as the um, my father's response um, to the concerns about authenticity. You know, there was a, uh, five skeptics that got together and wrote a, uh, a piece about, you know, why they think it's not real, and um, all those issues have been dealt with, and uh, there's a whole uh, chapter, or not chapter, but sort of addendum of three, four pages that discusses those issues. Yeah. Um, so it's important to the book because we're so confident it's authentic and that it's so much on point for crash retrievals. Exactly. Uh, and that's why it's uh, it's a key element in the uh, in the introduction and the uh, the appendix. Yeah. Uh, to to the book magic eyes only yeah it's an important addition because it you know it's not just the it's the crashes from the other side of the fence pretty much you know it's sort of like uh their their perspective on the crashes the insiders um moving on from the book is sort of a contemporary question and that is uh sort of a pet question i have i have two pet questions that i ask everybody it seems nowadays the first one is on serpo um, if you heard, I assume you've heard of the Serpo story that's going around, and, and given your wealth of documents and what have you, um, what can you lend to this story, if anything? Well, I don't really, I haven't followed it too much. Uh, I think my father's been following it closer. I think it's fascinating, intriguing. It, it seems to have hints and hallmarks of authenticity, but at the same time, baggage. It's in my you know, as Stan Friedman calls, gray basket. Yep, I, yep. I'm, I'm sort of real busy on lots of the things, and I'm, I'm sort of letting time pass on it. Um, yeah. Uh, I'd love to see some real documents, or rather than just stories and things like that. Uh, but uh, it so far, it hasn't been too whacked out uh, to say that it's not believable. Um, now, there's, there's problems with virtually everything that you look at, but I, I like the fact that uh, it's it's bouncing around. I mean, it, it's clear it's not a disinformation ploy. Um, it, the government isn't doing it to confuse the situation. It just draws more attention. Yeah. Uh, so it's either uh, the delusional efforts of of a couple wackos or a wacko uh, that just wants fame and attention, um, or it's it's real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, so we sort of uh, let the test of time work its magic on this one. Uh, yeah, that's sort of my attitude right now, um, and let it get a little more vetting, and mm -hmm. when I get some more time, maybe I'll dig into it. But um, you know, somebody ought to dedicate themselves to being a Serpo expert. <laughs> I mean, uh, in my mind, it boils down to just all the best you're going to have at the end of the day is good stories. Yeah. 
when and I'm saying, you know, that doesn't get the mustard. What you need is you got to have parts. Yeah, yeah. You got to have physical evidence. You got to have proof. You got to have witnesses. You got to have much more than just good stories and witnesses. Mm-hmm. And and so to some extent, it's a diversion from the mother load, yeah. uh, and that's uh, that's the baggage of it. Yeah. In the end, we're going to have to drag the parts and the technology and the economic advantage through the media and through the press and through society and the science community and to get them before they're going to realize that it's genuine. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm reminded of a comment uh, about psychics, you know. If you're so psychic, how come you aren't rich? (laughs) And, you know, if UFOs are real, how come you aren't rich? Um, And... Until you can respond to that question and say, well, yeah, I got four patents, I got a bunch of money in this, and uh, yeah, I am getting really rich, yeah. and this corporation's getting really rich on this technology, then they sort of shut up. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, now there, there are corporations getting rich on this all the time, but the linkage and the proof back to ET hardware is... Uh, hidden. Yeah. And um, my other pet question that I ask a lot of people on uh, this one is less contemporary, totally less contemporary, actually. Um, but since you're sort of in the realm of documents and everything, um, the APRO files, I ask a lot of people about these because apparently when APRO went under and the Lorenzans died, uh, the documents and the files um, went into the hands of someone else, and now they're pretty much um, gone. Um, what do you know about the APRO documents? Um, and there's probably a lot of crashes in there that we can't get our hands on, really, you think? I think there's a lot of interesting data in there that I'd love to get my hands on. And uh, um, John Schusler, the international director of MUFON, um, knows the people that has them. They're in a warehouse, um, and he has been unsuccessful in negotiating for their ownership. Uh, and I've told him and the board has told, uh, discussed it, um, the board of MUFON. Yeah to say that, you know, this is real important and we should be getting on this. And I think the long and short of it is that they're probably available, but uh, MUFON doesn't have the type of money that the guy wants. Um, You know, I don't don't know what the answer is, but if you call them up and said, you know, well, um, will $100,000 do? He will say, well, yeah, or, well, that's a good starting point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, will a quarter of a million dollars do? Well, that should do it. Uh, I think the answer is something like that. Yeah. And, uh, or they're just going to sit there. Yeah. And and I think they're not going to get destroyed. Um, but uh, that's, that's where it's at. Yeah, in my that's mind. it. Uh, yeah, I've always... I, well, I had seen Walt Andrus at uh, last year's X conference, and uh, he gave a speech, and he t- was talking about the evolution of various UFO groups, and that APRO, the missing APRO documents and files story sort of stuck with me, and I always end up asking the guests uh, about that and if they know much about it or, or what they think of that, because it's a strange sort of turn of events, but it sounds like from what you're saying that it's a money issue almost. This guy must think he's yeah, I think it's just money. Yeah, I think it's just cut a deal. Uh, I think it's, it's nothing more than, than, you know, 
cut a deal to, to get them. You know, he may say, well, you know, you have to preserve the original ones and you 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 have to cite credit and, do, you know, you have to do the appropriate archive library thing. Yeah. Uh, but all that stuff's manageable. Now, I'll give you one interesting story as a tidbit about Walt Andrus, uh, and I, I was shocked, is that for many years when Walt Andrus was the head of MUFON, um, he routinely um, got all sorts of reports from all over the, the world about UFOs, and um, he, he gave them to somebody to sort of review and, and vet. Yeah. And um, uh, probably two-thirds of them were thrown away. Oh, man. Right, because Walt Andrus' uh, you know, vetter thought they weren't much to him. And uh, and and you know when John Sussler took over, that practice stopped immediately, and and so forth. And so this is the stuff that just drives me crazy. Yeah, is that you know is there a possibility that Walt Andrus was um, either just stupid or um, was deliberately uh, letting somebody? You know, spin the data and yeah. uh, and minimize the data and impact. I know that seems kind of harsh. He's a wonderful man. He did a lot of great work, and and you know, he, he deserves a lot of accolades for running Mufon for such a long time. But at the same time, I I, I uh, surprised. Yeah, that's a tremendous uh, mistake. Yeah. Right. Um. Yeah. Well, that's that's very interesting. Your website, majesticdocuments.com. Tell us a little bit about that. I suggest people check it out. It's got a wealth of material. So, um, you know, sort of talk about that a little bit because uh, if you haven't checked out MajesticDocuments.com, you're missing out on tons of stuff. Yeah, um, Majestic Documents is sort of the work on the documents. I mean, the 3,500 pages, you can um, download uh, the various documents themselves. You can... Uh, See various products. You can buy this stuff in in many different forms, in book form instead of downloading it. Um, you know, we, it's the results of a lot of work um, that's been done. We have um, sort of an investigation team. There's several papers on authentication that uh, discuss in, in more detail different. Uh, different aspects. There's a, a famous UFO quotes uh, PowerPoint. Um, the paper I wrote on, or paper on Dad wrote on mounting evidence for authenticity of MJ-12 documents. Um, I have the Cape Girardeau crash uh, up there, a paper that I wrote. Um, and uh, there's paper that I wrote on psychological warfare in the Majestic documents, Little Evidence of Deception. Ten reasons why Tim Cooper is not a, a Providence problem, and you know, not not a faker. Yeah. So there's there's things like that, as as well as um, pictures and witnesses and official documents from the Freedom of Information Act and British Records Public Records Office and the National Archives and Records Administration and NICAP and Truman Library and there's the Majestic Personnel page where you can go there and, and look at the the master MJ-12 list uh, that has, um, you know, complete listing of everybody that I think is, is linked to MJ-12, uh, name, rank, serial number, social security number, date of birth, uh, why they're 
they're critical. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of um, a lot of data there. It's yeah, pretty it's a big, great website. Pretty, yeah, pretty big site. Yeah, I definitely uh, suggest people check it out. MajesticDocuments.com. It's uh, it's just a, it's a it's a great place for for research and and a whole host of uh, avenues you can go down there once you check it out. Um, the other thing I want to talk to you about the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. This is uh, you and your dad put this on. Um, you've had three now, correct? Yeah, three. Okay, three. Uh, how did it come about? Uh, how was it involved? What's it like running your own conference? Um, tell me about the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. Um, before you do, uh, I've heard just amazingly good things about the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference, and I'm not I'm not kissing your butt here. This is the truth because everybody I talk to who's gone always says it's awesome. All the people who are on the show who speak there always tell me, you got to check out the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. sounds like the place to be as far as conferences goes. It's uh, one of the, the best of, of the conferences out there that I've heard of. So tell me about it, how to come about, like I said, how has it evolved, yeah. and, you know, what's it like running it? Well, um, it sort of evolved because I became personally disgusted with going to the other conferences and and getting a, a cross-section of, of goo. Uh, <laughs> you know, a couple of talks were great, and the rest of it was just like, oh, my God, how in the world did they ever let this guy on the stage? <laughs> uh, and, and so I said, hey, I'm just going to make my own conference, and I'm going to focus on what I consider the, the core thing, and that is the crash retrievals. Um, and so that's what I decided to do, and uh, we're coming up here on the fourth one, November 10th through 12th uh, uh, in 06 at the uh, Tuscany in Las Vegas, and we should have three, 400 people there. Uh, we've got a pretty good lineup this year. We typically have um, at least four, sometimes as many as six different crash retrievals that are talked about just by one speaker and then some other aspects. Um, this year we got Stan Friedman talking about, uh, you know, why UFOs crash. Um, uh, Michael Sala is going to give an overview of crashed UFO black operations. Um, we typically have a uh, speaker panel uh, and press conference on Friday night and Everybody gives a little five-minute summary. Um, Rich Dolan will be there and have part two of his, uh, you know, two-volume set, UFOs in the National Security State from 1973 to 2006. He's um, working hot and heavy on that right now, and yep. by yep. the fall we'll have it done. Um, Paul Shatskin, uh, who's done a couple of biographies, and he's working on... Uh, T. Townsend Brown, a famous sort of anti-gravity, electrogravitics um, person, and I'm going to have him talking about the linkages of, of him to the UFO field and to the government and so forth. Uh, he, I typically have one sort of in-depth biography of an interesting person that was either murdered by MJ-12 or relevant to yeah. This this process. Mm -hmm. um, I'm giving a talk on a brand new crash retrieval that's not in my book. It's one of the mass, the new, uh, the new eleven that I've got, uh, and I hope to have some some real breathtaking uh, 
info about that. I mean, it's a good story right now, but with a little more research, I, I may have hardware. Awesome. So that'll be that should light people up. Awesome. Um, and then uh, Michael Lindemann, um, who's talking about scenarios of contact, he he's been a facilitator of uh, when he worked for Joe Firmage of a group of 20 people or so that went over a couple of weekends that talked about scenarios of contact and he'll be reporting the results of that uh, um, high level investigation. They had a lot of military generals and scientists and um, it was a very interesting um, uh, event and, and you know, why they're contacting or what the implications of contact are uh, in an open society uh, I think is an important discussion. Yeah. Um, and then I'm still working on a keynote speech, um, trying to get some people. Uh, my dad and Nick Redfern uh, are going to be talking about crash UFOs and bio-warfare. Um, uh, my dad is uh, finishing up his first book on uh, alien viruses. Oh, boy. And, um, and that should be very interesting. Um, Frank Faschino is going to talk about the Braxton County Monster. He's completely redone his book. Uh, he was had a disappointing experience with his publisher, mm -hmm. and um, they hacked through a bunch of it and screwed it all up. And, oh man! Uh, uh, so he's he's redone it and, and made it a much more scholarly, stronger book. Awesome. Um, Linda Howe will be back to give an update on her fifty-three and some other. Uh, crash disk informants and so forth. Uh, I got Bruce McAbee to come talk about the El Indio Guerrero, December 6, 1950 UFO crash, and I'm helping him with, with that, um, getting some more data, new data people haven't seen. Um, Matthew, Matthew Thune is going to talk about the uh, Lumini Island incident off of... Uh, of an underwater Roswell event. Here's here's a new one. Um, Peter Merlin. Oh, um, he's uh, his talks uh, after the fire. How the government responds to top secret crashes. Oh, he Lord. is um, basically a crashed airplane expert. Yeah, he, he's uh, he's been to hundreds of crashes, including uh, the. Um, Stealth fighter that crashed outside Bakersfield, and he's giving a talk on on sort of uh, what they do and how they respond when something important crashes. Um, how's the how's the site sanitized? Did they remove every trace mm -hmm. and so forth? He's an aerospace archaeologist, um, and so it, it should be very interesting because he's. You know, he's not in the UFO field per se, but uh, he's bringing an important uh, skill dimension to this topic. Yeah. Um, and so that's um, that's, that's a, the cross section of our our conference, and uh, ufoconference.com has all the data. And if you go to the website, you can register online or fax it in and see the. Uh, yeah, and that's ufoconference.com. Yeah, ufoconference.com. Awesome. Well, I can almost guarantee that I will be there this year at the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference 4. So 
Okay, good. Uh, we'll, we'll finally get a chance to meet up. Um, that's November 10th to the 12th. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, aside from that, that's obviously a huge event. I can't wait to uh, check it out. What's next for Ryan Wood? What do you have uh, in the pipeline? Like you said, you got these 11 cases you're looking into. What else is up? Well, I have I have a real job too. <laughs> so uh, yeah, the answer is um, work on some of these cases, manage my conference, um, and uh, that's that's about it um, for the time being. Uh, awesome. You know, so that's that's my focus. You know, if, if there's any place that I want to go, and that is more towards parts, more towards physical evidence, um, get some more. Uh, parts in context mm-hmm. um, that uh, are traceable directly out of the ground as being linked to a crash retrieval. Yeah. Um, any conferences uh, that you'll be speaking at or anything that you want to mention uh, for the summer? Well, yeah, I'll be like speaking that? at the, um, the MUFON conference in July uh, here in Denver mm-hmm. um, about uh, my research and, and book and so forth. Yep. And then I'll be speaking also at the Bay Area UFO Expo in September. Okay. Uh, again, about my research and book, mm-hmm. and then the November conference. Um, all right. Awesome. Um, well, thank you very much for uh, appearing on the show. The book, like I said, is really amazing. It's a fun read. 74 UFO crash reports are in there, plus uh, the extra section on SETI, some stuff on Thomas Cantwheel, the, uh, the the reprint of the Psalm 101 document. There's tons of stuff in there. The book, Magic Eyes Only, you can find that under magiceyesonly.com, the website. You also have the website MajesticDocuments.com, which we talked about. That's a wealth of information. And uh, also, as you said, the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference 4 coming this coming November. Uh, and you can find out more about that at UFOConference.com. Ryan Wood, thank you very much. The book is really amazing. Magic Eyes Only. It was a fun read. Thanks for being on the show. I had a great time talking to you. Well, thank you. That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio. I want to thank... Ryan Wood for sitting down and talking to us for so long. Lots of cool information there. The websites, let me roll them out for you one more time. For the book, it's Magic Eyes Only, M-A-J-I-C-E-Y-E-S-O-N-L-Y.com. For the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference 4, it is UFOConference.com. And for the Majestic Documents, it is MajesticDocuments.com. That's the trifecta of websites. Check them out. Lots of great information on Majestic Documents at MajesticDocuments.com. How to find out about the book at MagicEyesOnly.com. And how to find out about the critically acclaimed UFO Crash Retrieval Conference at UFOConference.com. I want to thank also Leslie, Chiron, and R. Lee of BenAllOfAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series and the website. Check out their columns at BenAllOfAmerica.com. Leslie's on Tuesday, Chiron on Wednesday, R. Lee every other Monday or so. You're going to just check in on Mondays and R. Lee may show up. You never know. She's a trickster. And, of course, we have tons of other stuff at BenAllOfAmerica.com, updated daily. So, if you aren't getting your daily dose of BenAllOfAmerica.com, there's something wrong with you. You need to check out the website. I want to also give a shout-out and a plug and a mention to Leslie's Ghost Photo Contest that's ongoing. We've been talking about it here on America Audio for the last few weeks. It is winding down. The last day to enter your ghost photo is May 28th. 
That's this Sunday at midnight Eastern Time. Go to ghostphotocontest.blogspot.com for information on how to enter, for information on the fabulous prizes, for information on the many ghost pictures that have already been entered. The voting, I presume, will start next week. But for now, if you get the ghost photo, if you've been sitting on a classic ghost photo that you want us to see, put it up there, ghostphotocontest.blogspot.com. That's the contest. Cool prizes. Check it out. If you're a long-time listener of BanalofAmerica.com and you want to help us out, it would be hugely appreciated. It would help offset the costs of the BOA empire greatly. Uh, if you can make a donation, that would be killer. Click on the PayPal button at BanalofAmerica.com and see what you can do. I'd appreciate it. Next week on Banal of America Audio, it is... BOA Audio taking on pop culture as only we can. James Gutman, author of World Wrestling Insanity. I'm a longtime wrestling fan. I wanted to spice it up a little bit. I know James, so there's a special rapport there. He uh, he and I worked together on his audio series. So I said, hey, why don't you come on with All of America Audio? I always can see a tie-in between the esoteric and the most esoteric sport out there, professional wrestling. So we're going to talk about the inside workings of this wacky industry, how one family and their crazy politics shape what you see on TV twice a week, sometimes three times a week. We're going to be talking about how there's no wrestlers union and how there's an epidemic of wrestler deaths going on that is barely mentioned by the mainstream media. Uh, pretty much, it's going to be esoteric look at professional wrestling. You're going to want to be here for that one, folks. It is going to be killer. That's next week on Banal of America Audio 636. Be there or be square. Until you hear from me next week, this is Tim Banal, signing off.